Hey, everybody. Hey, welcome to Morrison Heights. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time here, uh, my name's Timothy, and I'm the associate college minister here at Mo Heights, and um, you have found yourself towards the end of a, of a cool series that we've been working through that we have cleverly entitled Our Faith Works. That title is going to go down in, in history at Mo Heights. I'm very proud of it. Uh, and just a quick recap of what we talked about. We've, we've been dealing with faith and the different questions of, of what faith is and what it ain't. We uh, started with just the foundation of faith and that it's all based on who Jesus is rather than a feeling or a force. We talked about how God speaks first and that is what our faith is based on, that it's the promises of God, not simply whatever we want to have faith in. No, it is what God has said to be true. We had... Brian Crawford come in from Vicksburg. That was really cool. He talked about what happens when your entire worldview is based on um, faith producing health and wealth in your life, and then you lose out on the health, and how your faith is strengthened through that. And last week, Drew talked about how our works do not save us, but it is impossible to have true faith separated from works, that works will express themselves because of the inward change due to faith. And tonight we're talking about a cool, cool subject. I'm excited about it. Um, Drew keeps letting me pick whatever I want to preach on, and I keep picking really difficult things to preach on. I don't know why, and tonight's so different. We're talking about assurance of salvation, biblical assurance. Basically, how can I know that I have saving faith? How do I know that my faith is good enough, that my faith is correct that my faith will lead me to have eternal life with Jesus. This is really hard to preach for a couple of reasons. First of all, I have no idea what is in your heart. This is a very introspective question that you are the true judge of. You can look in your heart. You can ask yourself some difficult questions, but me or Drew or anybody else cannot tell you where you stand. We can just point to what the Word says and let you test yourself. And second of all, there's a weird balance here because I want every Christian in this room to have the utmost confidence that you are saved and for you to never question that again. And on the flip side, I know that there are probably some people here who think that they have done what needs to be done and they are not saved. And I want you to question it. I, I want you to see the truth about where you stand. So, like, I want to encourage, but I want to warn, and I want to comfort, but I want to kind of alarm, and I'm just kind of in the middle. Uh, so give me a little bit of grace. I'll try to do the same for you. Um, but I know that a lot of us have a similar story. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you were raised in a Southern Baptist church, and when you were younger, you said the sinner's prayer. Maybe it was uh, combined with walking down an aisle Maybe you were at a youth event and you raised your hand or you stood up at the end to signify that you have been saved and maybe you talked with the preacher and he told you to write a date in your Bible so that you can point to it whenever the devil makes you doubt. Maybe you did all of those things, but the, 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 the frightening truth of it is I did those things and I didn't receive saving faith until a decade later. 
And I know a lot of you are in the same boat as me, right? Like you think about what you did as a kid, and you think about when you really came to know Jesus, and there were different times. But I also know that people really do come to know Christ when they're eight. So let's get to it, man. Let's, let's see if we can figure out where we stand. Um, just due to the sheer size of the topic, we can't cover everything tonight. Um, but I'm going to pull a Greg Belser. I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, I've only read like 10 books in my life, so uh, the, the list is short. But uh, I got this book called Stop Asking Jesus in Your Heart by J.D. Greer. It is a great book. Uh, if you look to dive into a little bit more of the subject, um, it's not hating on the sinner's prayer. It's just talking about biblical assurance and how you know you're saved. Really good. And it's like 100 pages long. And so college students who say that they are really busy can still find time to read a book. Uh, but tonight, that's not the book we're looking at tonight. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. And the reason that I picked 1 John to talk about this is because in chapter 5, verse 13, John tells us that his purpose in writing this letter is that, and I quote, you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to believers who are questioning the authenticity of their faith. And the reason that they're questioning their faith is because in their church were heretics, were false teachers that were leaving the congregation because they developed some weird ideas about who Jesus is and what the Christian life looks like, which we'll talk about. But like we, we kind of know these people, right? Like people who become disillusioned with the church, they leave the church, but they still kind of stick around and they're whispering in people's ears. That's kind of what these heretics were doing. They were kind of staying around telling people, hey, you need to leave the church too. My beliefs are right. You need to leave the Christian church. You need to come follow me. And so a lot of these Christians in the church were beginning to have questions. And on top of everything, these like false teachers told the Christians that they can be trusted because they had special revelation from God, that they had a special anointing of the Spirit, that they had moved on to the next level of Christianity and were leaving the old ways behind. Very compelling. So John writes this letters. Uh, to, to combat these teachings, and we know it was important to him. Um, here's a little, little excerpt from uh, Jewish history, all right? Oh, sounds riveting, uh, but really. Uh, a guy named Arrhenius wrote this, talking about John, and he said, There are also those who heard from Polycarp that John, the Lord's disciple, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving Corinthia, who is like a false teacher, inside, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing and exclaiming, let us flee, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Corinthius, the enemy of the truth, is inside. And uh, other recounts of this story clarified that he ran out of the bathhouse nude. And so he just flings the towel out and he says, I ain't going in there, there's heretics, and the house is going to fall down. So John was serious about his false teachers. Uh, motives questionable, passion undeniable. John knew what he believed. And as such, with such a passion, he really wants these believers to know where they stand, so he gives a series of tests for believers to use on themselves to see if they have truly believed in the gospel of Christ and repented of the previous lives of sin. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the same. I'm going to point out a few things that designate the lives of all Christians, namely belief and repentance, and then we will examine ourselves to see where we stand in light of the truth of the gospel. Before we go any further, I want you to know one massive truth Jesus wants his disciples to know that they are saved. I think sometimes when we question our faith, we forget that. 
like we think, well, God, why isn't it clearer? Why don't I just know? What are you doing? Do you want me to struggle with this? And God doesn't. Like, Jesus wants you to have the utmost confidence in where you stand before God. He wants you to know. Um, As any husband would tell you, husbands want their wives to know that they are loved, protected. Fathers want their children to know that they do not have to fear their parents. In the same way, Jesus doesn't want you to fret. He wants you to rest in the truth of the gospel. That's the goal. Um, and John, is, that's why he's writing, okay? He's not calling out non-believers. He wants to assure believers. So let's look at what the text says. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5. This is pretty much a summary of the entire book of, of 1 John. It says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Thank goodness. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Hey, let's pray real quick, and then we'll get into it. Father, Lord, bless this time. Let it be holy, set apart for your glory. I pray your word will speak, that fancy words won't have an effect, but the truth of the gospel will, that you'll open the hearts of the students here that they'll know where they stand, and that you'll do a great thing in their hearts. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Cool. All right. First thing I want you to understand, all Christians, everyone who is saved, believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to specifically examine two things mainly, which is belief and repentance. And the test that John gives stands in stark contrast to what the false teachers were, were telling the Christians of the letter. Um, they were talking about Jesus, had some weird thoughts, they did not believe that the gospel was true. And up to this point, everything that John writes about talked about obedience and love. But now he's in chapter 5 and he is hitting uh, proper belief. He is hitting faith hard. It's used ten times in the book, seven times in chapter five. So now we are rolling on faith. Proper faith, proper belief is important um, because saving faith is not built on a feeling or a religious agreement. It's, it's built on fact. It's built on the actual historical event and person of Jesus. Uh, in verse one, we see the phrase born of God, and, and what that means is that you are saved. If you are born of God, you are saved, you are a Christian. You are in right standing before God. Specifically, it means this, that God has initiated a change in your heart through the Spirit in conjunction with faith in Christ. So you have a new heart because you have faith in Jesus. There's never a time where you have faith in Jesus where you're not born again. You are not born again without having faith in Jesus. They they walk hand in hand. Um, And it's fitting that this is where we start when we're talking about new birth and the first test, right? Because everything about Christianity is built on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. If I'm going to point to anything in the past to assure you of your faith today, I'm not pointing to something you did when you were eight. I'm pointing to what Christ did 2,000 years ago. It all starts with that. 
All right, now we know some things about proper faith. We know that it is associated with actions, but before this, before action, we have to have the proper understanding of the facts. Because apart from who Jesus is and what Jesus did, you cannot be saved. If you take the cross out of the picture, if Jesus had not absorbed the wrath of God, I do not care how well you live your life, you will not be saved. It all hinges on Jesus' death and resurrection. But this isn't historical agreement. I believe the Civil War happened. I do not believe that in the same way I believe in Jesus. I do not look at things in history and know that they are true the way that I know the cross of Christ has saved me. It is totally different. Likewise, it's not some vague religious commitment. It is specific and it is this. Okay, when we say that you believe in Jesus Christ, what we mean is that you have a wholehearted trust in the saving nature of Christ. In short, you're banking on Jesus. <laughs> it is all or nothing. Okay, belief in Christ does not say, well, I know Jesus died for me, but just in case that's not good enough, I'm also going to have this. If your belief for salvation is Jesus and, then you don't really know who Jesus is. Uh, I'll put it like this. When I was in youth, uh, I was like in 10th grade, I had a friend named Kevin, really smart kid, like top of the class, and he thought that he had figured out like a loophole of the world. And his viewpoint was, well, why doesn't everybody accept Jesus? Because then, I mean, like, all you got to do is accept Jesus, and then if we're wrong, you die. But if you don't accept Jesus and they're wrong, then they go to hell. And so wouldn't the safe bet be that everyone just accept Jesus? whether or not they really believe it or not. Because to a 10th grader who doesn't really know the gospel, like this makes perfect sense, right? Like Jesus is a safety net. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll have Jesus in my back pocket. And then if I need it, he's going to be there. This is not what John was talking about. John is talking about all or nothing. All the money on the table is going to Jesus. That when I stand before God, he asks me why am I righteous, I'm pointing to Jesus. And if that don't cut it, then I don't cut it. But it's going to cut it. <laughs> But what specifically does John say we need to believe? Okay, he says, verse 1, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, the anointed one, the one who is doing the work of God, the one who has come to deliver his people from sin, the one we've been waiting for. Don't got to wait anymore, it's Jesus. Got to believe that. He has been born of God, the very nature of God, the Son of God. Um, if you read the beginning of John's gospel, it's very clear that Jesus is, by nature, God in the flesh. Okay? Got to think that way. And then um, later on, in verse 13, that we believe in the name of the Son of God, that he is our banner, that we trust in the person of who Jesus is. Basically this, all right? If you are in right standing with God, you will make much of Jesus. There is no one who is in right relationship with God who belittles Christ. Doesn't happen. In chapter 2 of 1 John, he wrote that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ does not have the Father. You can believe whatever you want to about God. It could be, it could be accurate. You could believe that there is a higher power that is gracious and merciful and all-powerful. But if you have messed up views about who Jesus is, then it doesn't matter. 
Uh, I've interviewed like deists, like people who believe that that God is good and that he loves his people, but he kind of stepped back and that Jesus wasn't anything. They don't really know who God is. They don't know the true character and nature of God because it's impossible to separate it from Jesus. The same way it is impossible to be in right standing without making much of Christ. If your worldview does not make much of Jesus, and I say this with all gentleness, if your worldview does not make much of Jesus, then you should not be assured of your salvation. You shouldn't. Because to be saved is to make much of Christ. Now, this is where it gets difficult. In a moment of weakness, can a Christian doubt and be saved? Yes. You do it every day. That's what sin is. <laughs> sin is belittling Jesus. Sin is not trusting that Jesus is honest, that Jesus is right. That is why we sin. So, let's talk about it. Because <laughs> I know that's a confusing statement. But the question is not, will you never struggle because you will? But when we struggle, when we doubt, man, that's getting annoying, isn't it? I don't know what that means. Oh, it's the green mic? Okay, cool. I'll turn that off. Okay, but the, uh, the point of the matter is this, that when we doubt, do, are we complacent in our doubt? Do we remain in our doubt, or is this the launch pad to make us run to Jesus all the more? Okay, for the believer, moments of doubt are the exception rather than the trend. Uh, kind of when I was younger, um, I didn't think of it like this way. And what I thought, you know, moments of disbelief, man, like your salvation was like waxing and waning with every decision that you make. But that's, that's not true. Do you know why? Because feelings don't change facts. And if you are washed by the blood of the Lamb, you do not become unwashed. It does not happen. So the question is not whether or not we doubt. It's whether do we remain in doubt. Are we complacent in doubt? Do we say, no, that's not real and I'm okay with this? Or do we say, I question this, and I will run to Jesus all the more. Lord, help my disbelief. Where do we stand in those moments? It's going to make more sense when we talk about this later. Second thing. All Christians repent from their own lordship and obey the commands of God. Okay, this is in verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Okay, so the false teachers back in the day believed that they could do whatever they want, and they were not in wrong standing with the Father. Okay, John, you're killing me, John, you're killing me. Okay, great. This is much worse. Okay, here we go. Okay. Thank you, John. I love you. Okay, they did not acknowledge their sinfulness, okay, because they believed that they could do whatever they wanted, okay? You read the first part of 1 John, and it talks about people who claim to walk in the light but are actually walking in darkness. Makes a lot more sense now, right? Well, we can look at these people who claim to be free from sin who did not obey the commandments of God because they did not feel they had to because they were on a different plane of Christianity. So this leads us to talk about repentance. Okay, the first word of Jesus' earthly ministry was to repent and believe in the gospel of God. Time is nigh. Repent and believe. The first command you hear from Jesus is the ministry. To repent. Pretty important. What does it mean? Okay, a belief in God is connected with a love of God, 
which is always connected with obedience to his commands. A love for God is not so much like some emotional experience as much as it is a moral commitment. Uh, Literally, repenting means to, to turn away. So yeah, we turn away from our sins, but also means that we turn to something, namely Christ. But even that sells it a little short, okay? You know a good test to see if you're truly repenting? What do you do with the commands of God that you disagree with? The commands of God that you look at and you say, I don't want to do that. That doesn't fit into my worldview. I don't, that doesn't make any sense. In that moment, who's the Lord of your life? Is it you? Do you decide that you're not going to do it anyway? Or is it God and you're going to say, I don't get it, but okay. We see a little clearer picture of what repentance is. It means that we turn away from our own lordship and we turn to Christ. It means that we turn away from the world and we turn to the kingdom. In Jesus' day, when Jesus said to repent and he's teaching what he's teaching, they would have all known, man, this means that we're going to have to reject the Roman worldview. If the world tells us to want A and Jesus tells us to want B, then we want B, even if we really want A. Does that make sense? That we turn away from what the world says is right. Think of it as loyalty to a king, all right? King calls you in the throne room. Tells you to do something, your obedience reflects your loyalty. Uh, now, granted, there's a great difference in people obeying an earthly king and Jesus. When I think about people obeying an earthly king, I thought of a few reasons why people would do that. One, you have fear. You're afraid of what the king can do. If you disobey, who knows what he can do? Or maybe you're greedy for what he can give you. The king is powerful. If I get on his good side, he will bless me. Or you agree with the king anyway. You would have done that anyway. It's convenient that the king asked you to do something that you wanted to do. But obeying the universal king is different. Because I know that every time I have disagreed with Jesus, I am wrong. I have never been right when I have argued with Jesus. Never. (laughs) And so when God tells me to do something, it may not be my initial reaction. It may, may, it may not be what I naturally want to do. In fact, it probably won't be because naturally I am sinful. But Jesus is my banner. And so I will do what my king asked me to do. Uh, let me give you a real life example. This is kind of silly, but it's true. Uh, I have a real narrow field of interest, okay? I got like five things I care about. And everything else, I'm like, eh. So choose carefully when you talk to me and what you talk to me about. Because uh, I am not good at feigning interest. I have been called out by teachers, uh, bosses, friends. When I don't care, I have a really hard time pretending like I do. Like all the high students are like, yeah, we know. <laughs> but you know what one of the first dates that me and Beth went on? We went to the art museum for an exhibit on quilting. All right, let me tell you something. I don't know if this is a surprise for you, but of my five interests, quilting ain't one of them. All right? Never thought that I would care about quilting. And Beth loves it. Because she's weird. (laughs) But at that point in time, I knew I must really care about Beth. Because in the midst of it, 
you know what I really wanted to know about? Quilting. <laughs> I was interested in what she had to say. I wanted to know everything she knew about quilting. And that's when I started saving up for a ring. <laughs> that's kind of a silly example, but the truth of the matter is when you care about someone, when you love someone, then your worldview starts to line up more and more. Their goals, their interests, their plans, well, yours start to look a lot like theirs. And when we start to follow Christ, when we repent from ourselves and turn to Jesus, we find that their goal, his goal, becomes our goal. His goal is the glory of Christ. That's what our life becomes. It's no longer about Timothy. It's about Jesus. But in that, can a Christian sin? We're called to repent, but what happens in those moments where we don't? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Okay? Christians will sin. Christians will sin all the time, and they will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. All Christians will struggle with sin, but that is the key. They will struggle. It is a fight. If anybody says that the Christian life is easy, then they are not fighting sin. That's what I think every time someone tells me that it's easy. You're not fighting sin. It is a struggle. Before God's spirit came into you, you didn't struggle with sin. You ran to it. I ran to it. I loved it. I wanted it. That was my life. But now I struggle with it. Before, when I struggle with sin, it meant I struggle with consequences of being caught. But now I struggle with sin because I see it as an affront to who God is. And I don't want it in my life. And that makes me feel confident. In fact, I would put it like this. The closer you get to God, the more sinful you realize you really are. Think of, think of God, um, God's presence kind of like a flame. Before I was saved, I was far from the flame. I didn't think I was sinful because I couldn't clearly see myself. The closer I got to the flame, the more I realized, man, there's sin in my life. I really wish somebody would do something about that. And the closest that I get to God, I look and I see, the, the, I'm going to call it the dust of sin covering every decision I make. But I know how much I need grace. And I'm so thankful for it because I see my sinfulness in light of it. Christians have sin in their lives, but they do not celebrate it. They do not rest in it. They praise God that they are freed from it and they run. And Christians can deal with all kinds of sin. You know, before I started working at Morrison Heights, I really thought that like there were only a certain amount of sin that, that Christians can deal with. Only a certain type of sin. Like if you struggle with lying, then yeah, you're okay. But if you struggle with like sexual impurity, like yeah, pff, nah. But man, like the Christians that Paul writes to, they got some screwed up problems. Every Corinthians, they were struggling. <laughs> Believers that Paul wanted to get back on track. But the question is, are you complacent about it? This is where we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Because we run from our sin even though we know it's covered. I know that I've been forgiven. I know that the blood of the land covers my sin, but I don't want it in my life because my king has told me it's bad and I want to obey my king. This is repentance. This is how we know where we stand. And then finally in verses four and five, all Christians are marked by love for other believers. Verse four. For everyone who's been born of God is saved, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God? I actually give you the wrong verses. Those are also very good verses that have a lot of truth. Uh, but verse 2, <laughs> there we go. 
by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Everyone who believes in, in, in Christ, believes in the gospel of Christ, will love fellow believers, okay? Um, because we have a common father. Love your siblings, you love other believers. Uh, the heretics in the day that we were talking about, they were marked by the sense of elitism, okay? They were in a different realm of Christianity. So they saw themselves better than other people. They had left these jokers behind. Why care about them? They were the top of the class. But us, the believers, our lives are marked with action that shows that we love people. Just like our lives are marked with action that we love God. In fact, the only way that we can know how to love our neighbors is to obey the commandments of God. Otherwise, you don't know how to love. I would never know that love keeps no record of wrong outside Scripture reveals it to me. I would guess how I love people, but you probably wouldn't like the way I show love. But because of Scripture, I know how to show love to people. You see how it's all connected? That we believe in who Christ is, so we trust his word. We see his commandments. We want to live it out. And if we're living out his commandments, then our lives will be marked with love for other people. Because it is impossible to live a life marked by love without developing love. You have a hard time loving somebody? Start living your life like you do. Start serving them. It'll develop. Guarantee it. But, okay, this is a pretty powerful but. This is not a feeling, okay? Love is not a feeling. Faith, at its core, is not a feeling. Salvation is based on fact, not feeling. This is a commitment to the church, okay? This is shown when my brother in Christ inconveniences me with a need, and I help fulfill it. This is shown when I remember I'm on the same team of my brothers and sisters throughout the world, and I pray for their well-being, even though I don't know them. Everything Jesus did, ultimately he did for his glory, but it is not apart from the fact that everything he did, he did for the church. Paul makes it very clear that everything he does, he does for the sake of the elect. He does for the church. You cannot love Jesus apart from loving the church. Um, I'm going to use Drew as an example. Drew will will, uh, testify to this. You can really like Drew Dabbs. You can think he is awesome. But if you start with your conversation with Drew off by saying, Drew, you're awesome, but man, I hate Christy, then the conversation is done. Drew will not be your friend. He may pray for you because, of, I mean, Christy's, Christy's fun. Why would he hate Christy? But the conversation is over. You have lost standing with Drew. Likewise, you will love the bride of Christ if you love Christ because you love what Christ loves, and he very much loves the church. Now, does this mean we always feel love for the church? No, but our feelings are never suggested as a test for obedience. They're never, they're never suggested as, as the proper way to define where we stand doesn't matter how you feel. Don't feel like loving the church, but still committed to it. This is a really good sign. Because that shows that your moral commitment transcends your temporary feelings. Do you like Christians, but don't think you need to help the church in any way? Bad sign. I got a couple of things about why this applies. It's only going to take a few minutes, so we'll be done. A couple of things that you already know, but I just kind of want to drive it home. I've said it once, I've said it a lot. Salvation is based on facts, not feelings. Some days you will not feel like obeying the commands of God. 
do them anyway. <laughs> They'll never hurt. Um, Tim Keller calls this changing duty to delight, that we wake up and we know that it's the right thing to do. We know that we're to follow Christ. We have committed ourselves to Christ, so we do it, and then wait for the day that we will want to do it every second of every day. But that probably won't even come until glory. But our salvation is not based on feelings. To those of you who look back in your life and you point to, to one moment specifically that you hang your hat on, that's cool. A lot of us have it, but I want you to understand something. A moment does not necessarily reflect eternity. Okay? A, a religious moment does not cover a lifetime of unrepentant sin. Uh, in this book that I, that I promoted from J.D. Greer, he talks about a story where he's playing basketball with somebody. And this guy is just, you know, just spitting out cuss words like a sailor, being really crude, telling a lot of terrible stories of, like, different escapades. Escapades are never good. Um, all the little crude things he's saying. And then the guy he's playing basketball with says, hey, aren't you a pastor? And J.D. Greer says, yes, I am. And the guy says, hey, that's awesome. I became a Christian when I was seven. And, like, the, the, the guy was very confident in the fact that what he did when he was seven held up, even though nothing else in his life ever reflected it since that. Don't be like that. <laughs> if you're still the God of your life right now, then it doesn't matter what you did in that specific moment. Our lives are marked by the trends of belief and repentance. And this is the last thing that I, I want to say. And this really, this is the crucial point, Okay. This is really what I want you to know. This is a difficult topic. It's confusing. I'm sure there's a lot of questions that you have. But this is the bottom line, all right? The question isn't, have I done this? But rather, am I doing this? This answers all of the questions. How am I saved? Repent and believe. Well, I don't know if I did that correctly. Are you doing it right now? Our lives as Christians are marked by a consistent, steady, eternal commitment to repentance and belief. This does not mean that we are continually being resaved through our lives, but this is the answer to the question that we can look at our lives right now. Is it marked by repentance? Is it marked by belief? Am I constantly running away from sin to Jesus? Do I believe in the gospel of Christ right now? If the answer is yes, congratulations, you are saved. If the answer is no, we need to look into it a little bit more. Um, I tell you all of this because I want you to be assured. I want you to rest in the fact that the blood of Jesus covers all kind of questions and doubts. But it is a lifelong, life-filled commitment to belief and repentance. Uh, right now, the band's going to come back up. Now, we're going to sing some songs, but you're going to have the opportunity to respond to that. If you question it, if you say, I don't know if I've done that. I don't know if I've believed in the gospel. I don't know if I've repented of my sin. We're going to give you an opportunity to talk to some people about it. I'll be in the back. Drew will be in the back. Um, we've got student leaders who would love to talk to you about it. But I definitely want to give anybody the opportunity to respond. Um, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for its depth and that it can save sinners like us.
Lord, I pray for the students in this room, Lord, that you are opening the eyes of their hearts so that they may know where they stand in relationship to you. I pray, Lord, that you will speak with them, that you will convict them of sin, and that you will comfort them and reassure them of their salvation, Lord, if needed. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all the blessings that you give us, Lord. And it's your heavenly name we pray. Amen.